Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 72, your Fiesta flight to Mexico and the ancient pyramids, now departing at gate 19. This is the captain speaking. Welcome aboard. We are now underway and proceeding on a course that will take us on a voyage of exploration through liquid space. Will the owner of a red and black land speeder vehicle ID THX-1138 please return to your craft? You are parked in a no-hover area. Don't worry. This is all part of the demonstration. Just testing. He's looking for a little more adventure, but he's heading for a little bit of trouble. He's heading for a little bit of danger. Time to be turning around. W Radio. Your information station. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I'm your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 289 for the week of August 26th, 2012. This week, I am so excited to share an interview with one of Disney's legendary Imagineers, Tony Baxter. Currently the Senior Vice President of Creative Development for Walt Disney Imagineering, we had a chance to meet and chat recently as we talk about his career at Disney, his mentors and inspirations, attractions he helped create such as Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Splash Mountain, and many others. Tony shares some wonderful stories about his personal experiences going from Disney fan to Disney Imagineer. We also discuss the current state of the Disney parks and what the future may hold. Then you'll have a chance to answer the Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week for a chance to win a Disney prize package. Then be sure and stay tuned for the announcements. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. I am so excited to share an interview with someone I've wanted to meet on a personal level for a very long time. He's someone who's not only worked in the Disney parks I've enjoyed and admired, but whose personal journey I continue to find inspiring and fascinating as well. He's helped conceptualize and create some of Disney's greatest attractions, from Big Thunder Mountain Railroad to the original Journey into Imagination attraction and pavilion. He helped bring us 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Splash Mountain, the Indiana Jones Adventure, and updates to Disneyland's Tomorrowland, Sleeping Beauty Castle, the Finding Nemo submarine voyage, and many, many more. I had a chance to sit down with Tony one-on-one -on -one recently and talk about his journey from Disney fan to Disney Imagineer. He shared stories of learning from and working with Disney legends while at Walt Disney Imagineering to bringing to life attractions and characters into the Disney parks. We talk about what's new in the parks today and what the future may bring as well. And for me personally, it was a fascinating conversation with someone who I've long wanted to meet and thank. So join me now as we sit and chat with Disney Imagineer, Tony Baxter. Enjoy. 
So it is a, a huge thrill and privilege for me who has been a Disney enthusiast since the first time my parents took me to Walt Disney World at the tender age of three in November of 71 to be sitting with someone who whose story and work I have admired for so many years. He is, of course, the legendary Tony Baxter. Mr. Baxter, it, it is such a, a pleasure to finally get a chance to meet you. Well, I wish I was the tender age of three when we opened the park, <laughs> but I was the tender age of, I think, 22. And uh, it was a great moment for me, too, because I never had left California at that time. So going to Florida alone and having my own apartment and everything was like <laughs> – and they were paying me. So I didn't have to pay to go to Disney World. I was being paid to be there. So unlike awesome. Unlike when you were a kid because Disneyland was always kind of oh, yeah. in your blood from a very, very early age. Mm-hmm. You know, tell us uh, briefly um, – you know, how your love of Disney started, how you come to work for the company and, and sort of that progression. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I was a little older than three, <laughs> unfortunately, because Disneyland didn't open until I was seven and a half. And but what I do remember the year before Disneyland opened was it was a television show that Walt put on the air called Disneyland. And it mimicked in its uh, entry sequence uh, the same way you would approach going to the theme park. So each week on television, we'd go to either Frontierland or Adventureland or Tomorrowland. And so by the time the park opened a year later, uh, every kid in America kind of knew what a Disneyland was. And because of the rich stories that were shown on that television show, like Davy Crockett and Alice in Wonderland, we knew the kind of adventures and the characters that would live inside each of these worlds. So um, I was raring to go. Of course, my parents said, well, we're not going the first summer because it'll be too crowded. And so I had to wait till the fall, all the while during that summer thinking it will fail and close before I get my chance to see it. But of course it didn't. And uh, I made many bicycle trips. I was about 10 miles away. Uh, way too far for a kid nine or eight years old to do. But in those days, parents didn't worry, and it wasn't a, a sin to let your kid ride his bike to another city. You know? <laughs> so uh, that became kind of my focal point, I guess, Disneyland. I never really th- – I thought in terms of maybe someday when I was really old, like 17 or 18, <laughs> I'd get a job as a ride operator there, which I did. Uh, but the thought of getting into the, the Imagineering uh, – echelon that that was not practical and you know on that wonderful show on tv they would show us scenes of imagineering <laughs> and we would meet people like john hinch and, and claude Coates and mark davis and roly crump and they were like to me um i was in awe of them in the same way you'd be in awe of a movie star or something because they were the people that created these dreams that i grew up on you know so the thought of ever joining that or being invited into it was not practical thinking. <laughs> you know, as you were saying that, uh, myself and I think a lot of people who are probably listening, as you're talking with people like a John Hench and a Roly Crump, I, I don't want to embarrass you, but that's how people are probably thinking of you because you are sort of that, you know, that, that new generation of legendary Imagineers. So you lived that dream that everybody thinks about, you know, starting to love Disneyland, you know, scooping ice cream and eventually getting to Imagineering. How does that you know, transition happened because everybody sort of asked the question, well, how do I become an Imagineer? How do I go from the ice cream guy to to the guy who's working with the people who you admired for so long? Well, first of all, I love that you said I'm the new generation because <laughs> uh, I've been more and more aware that I'm just about the oldest person working <laughs> there now, uh, which is frightening. How did that happen? Because 
uh, literally Dick Nunes, who was head of the parks, would love dragging me out on a, on a stage back in the 70s and 80s and say, here's a young man that scooped ice cream here at Disneyland, and it shows you that anyone can go anywhere they want in this organization if they've got the ambition and the skill to do it. All of a sudden, he didn't. <laughs> they stopped doing that after a while, and uh, that was the beginning. But, um, you know, I think what I found unusual is I, I was kind of making my education practical in that I was uh, sub-majoring in, in, in education, thinking, all right, I'll get all these artistry skills, but the reality is I'll probably teach art somewhere. And so that was sort of the, 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 the real you know, goal in life. And then I thought, if I'm lucky with a school job, I'll have the summers off and weekends off, so I'll continue working at Disneyland as a ride operator. So what in life could be better than that? So uh, that was a plan, but I got really inspired through a mentor at, at college, um, who I still know to this day, and she just turned 100, Dr. Maxine Merlino, who moved to Spain, and she lives on the third floor of a <laughs> place and still traipses up and down uh, at least two or three times a day at, at 100. Uh, and she just had this spirit, even then, that was like, so go for it. And, uh, you know, I should have been designing operas like Turandot was one of the requirements. But she heard this little inkling inside me that wanted to do something with Disney. And I was able to convince her that the attractions for Disneyland are as much theater as an opera or a play or a musical or whatever. So she let me take the amount of effort I would have put into a senior project as an opera and develop an attraction for Disneyland. So I thought, well, that'll be the end of it. I took it to Disneyland to show all the friends and people I worked with out there how it came out. And one of the supervisors saw it and said, I'm going to take that over to Dick Nunes. And Dick called and said, well, if you don't mind, I'll keep it a, a couple weeks and take it up to WED, Imagineering. And uh, then I got a call to come up. And uh, they weren't gushy or anything like that. They said, you know, work a little harder at learning your artistry skills, and, and when you're ready, come back and, and we'll look at you again. So on that second time, I not only had a lot of great art, but I had this crazy machine that had marbles, and uh, it, it ran for about five minutes, and it was kind of a combination of engineering and imagination, which, imagineering. Um, and uh, so I got through the artwork part of the interview, and then I said to the guy, can you come out to the car to look at this thing in the back? And he did. And he said, can we drive this around in the rear and bring it out and bring it into the building? And uh, so for a couple more hours, everyone in Imagineering must have gone back to their offices and said, go down and see what this kid brought in. And I ran my device from like 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, that resulted in two weeks later, I was, I was hired. So uh, never dreamt it would happen. It was always sort of the silly thing in life and not the practical thing of getting the, the, the teaching position. And now you start getting to meet and work with the people. Yes. Uh, you know, you're working for the company. Do you remember what that first day, that first week, that first project was like? Well, it's probably, yeah, I do remember the first project because I walked in the door. Disneyland had taken my costume away, and <laughs> that was how I found out I was hired. I went to check in my, uh, right after New Year's Eve, and I took in my costume to clean, have a clean one. 
And the guy goes, oh, there's a card here to keep your costume. You've been transferred to WDI. And I said, you're kidding, you know. And so I went in there, and it was like the next Monday. And I said, well, you know, they took my costume, so, but I hadn't heard anything. They said, oh, well, Mr. Baxter, we thought you'd be here in a couple weeks. But as long as you're here, why don't you go to work? So I remember I came in in a tie. In those days, everybody dressed up and then put it. The odd thing was we dressed up and then put a smock on to avoid getting paint and and glue and everything all over. And so I put the smock on, and they said, well, why don't you go out in the back? And I remember I was given a big paint roller and uh, a a pan of black paint, and I was told they were building the Hall of Presidents model for Walt Disney World, and I was told to paint all the plywood walls around it black so your attention would be focused on the... uh, And so I'm rolling this black paint, and I went... I was thinking in my mind, I went to school for five years. <laughs> I've worked at Disneyland, and I was taking people into the adventure through inner space as like a science fiction star of this attraction. And now I'm rolling black paint on the wall. Something is wrong with this picture. So that first day was not exactly, uh, you know, a, a classic uh, uh, moment. But I, very quickly in that week, I met what turned out to be my second mentor, Claude Coates, who had done... He and Mark had created the Pirates of the Caribbean with Claude's artistry and the set designs, and then, of course, Mark being the genius with animation and figures and whatnot. And I think that they had a powerful partnership. And uh, Claude, now that there was so much going on in Mark, everybody was going their separate ways. And Claude kind of took an inkling to me because I'd worked on his adventure through inner space ride as a ride operator. And uh, put me on board with him on the submarine ride for Walt Disney World, the 20,000 Leagues. And uh, and then while that was going on, he got uh, handed the task to do the Snow White ride. And I said, well, this is right up my alley. So uh, I would love to be involved in that. So he actually, right there in my first year, was really interested in what I thought about it. And would say, well, what do you think we should do in this area? Or what it what about this? And, and allowing me to do it. And then not only that, but when Card Walker was the head of the Disney company at the time, would come over to Imagineering, he, he would say, Card, I want you to meet Tony and, and see what he's done in this thing. I, I think he'll really like it. And uh, I think that for me became very inspirational in how to conduct yourself as a leader and somebody that uh, really encourages uh not just a prima donna attitude of their own greatness, because I certainly thought like what you're saying, <laughs> that, oh, my God, this is Claude Coates. But he instilled in me the sense of how much he regarded everybody else, you know, and, and that he had just as much respect for me, a kid from Santa Ana who worked the rides at Disneyland, as he did for the other people that I saw as legends. And so I've always felt kind of the same way, you know, of just understanding that when I meet someone, they're no different than where I was at one of these other stages. And if I can be helpful to moving them further along, then I, I do it, especially if I can recognize some really inherent talent there. So you, and again, you know, I, I wish we had so much more time because your the scope and the breadth of your work at WDI not only spans decades, but so many different attractions, Disneyland and Walt Disney World. You touched on things like, Fantasyland and 20,000 Leagues. You know, we're talking about attractions that many of, of us who are nostalgics miss <laughs> not being there anymore. Um, and so many uh, attractions like that that were 
new at the time and so groundbreaking. And I will tell you, Tony, that as a kid, I totally bought into it. Mm-hmm. I bought into the fact that our sub was going underwater yeah. and we went to so Volcano. I. <laughs> I, when, when the ads and the artwork appeared for Disneyland's version back in 1959, I remember looking at that and you could see the waterfalls and they had painted a picture of a submarine piercing through the waterfall. And with a you know nine-year-old's mentality, you go, well, what do they do? How do they keep the water at two different levels and have you go into deeper water by just traveling <laughs> through a wall of water? I thought, you know, I, I never thought that they would cheat and you would just be going into a building that was, uh, you know, hollow. I, I really thought that there were two levels of water. But yeah. And as somebody who loved the skyways, being – as a kid, I don't know how I never connected looking down and realizing that we weren't actually going underwater as we passed over the uh, 20,000 Leagues Lagoon. But again, Splash Mountain, Big Thunder Mountain, is so many of the quintessential new classic uh, attractions. Uh, again, we have unfortunately limited time, but I want to ask you not necessarily about the past, but the present and the future, because since that little boy that grew up watching Walt on TV and was there at Disneyland uh, in its in its opening days. Now we were coming to a point where in the past 50 years there, 40-plus years at Walt Disney World, so much has changed. Mm-hmm. Technology, still rooted in, the, in, in great storytelling. Now you see things like Cars Land, mm-hmm. Buena Vista Street, the expansion of Fantasyland. Can you sort of describe for us, if you sort of look at that, the, the forest of your time at Imagineering and what's changed – uh, what that's been like for you? Oh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> you see, I have very little yeah, amount of time, wow, so I put it all wow, into wow, one. Wow. I think, you know, each time there's a transformation, and it doesn't happen at WDI. I think it's at the higher levels of Disney. You know, um, it means a whole new uh, way of working, a whole new set of goals and aspirations. And the, the way I've tended to look at it is, um, I have a certain thing I bring and I'm really good at. And so each time there's a transformation, and as you say now, being challenged with technology and the overworked word of being interactive and Im- immersive, I hate using those words because the most immersive thing that's ever been done is the Jungle Cruise. <laughs> you know? You're immersed in a virtually real jungle, all right, and it's happening to you. So I don't know how much more you can do than that, but those are the words that are driving not just Disney, but the industry and the the speed of which, you know, uh, information is uh, demanded by the audience. They want faster, more, you know, and quick and thrilling and all this stuff. So you say, all right, those are the new rules. It's got to be interactive. It's got to be different every time I write and all that. But it's still got to deliver what I like, you know, because I think one of the genius things that Walt had uh, was that he always created attractions that and films that he wanted to see. You know, I mean, it's the best judge you have. If, if it's something you can sit and watch over and over again, I cannot tell you how many times I've watched the movie Sleeping Beauty. How much for for therapy to get to that dragon thing at the end is just incredible. So I look at these things and say it has to still still sustain. All the emotion. I, I tend to be very emotional. So, if it's the American Adventure, and at the end of it, I'm getting welled up with tears as they go into Golden Dream, uh, or it's um, you know the the amazement of coming into a massive room in Indiana Jones, or it's the delight of sailing out of Peter Pan's bedroom window, or you know a million other things like that that emotionally move you. Those have all got to be in there, and 
and yet you have the new set of challenges to meet the aspirations of leadership and financial demands and uh, whatever the the current you know uh, mandates are that are constantly changing and you know I think if, if of all the things Walt anticipated um, he probably always anticipated that he would be evolving as he said and, and never repeating himself but I don't know that he ever dealt with the thought of like others coming in and having other directions to go and how you would uh, react to that because WED or WDI WED he created and it's now WDI is sort of in a way I think the essence of what Walt Disney was it's a a massive you know group of people trying to function as that same you know spirit that Walt left behind and that spirit has to grapple with all kinds of ever-changing uh, relationships to the drive of the company and the desires of the audience and the fickle nature of entertainment in general and where it's going. And in the end, you know, you want the new attraction to be received almost seamlessly uh, along with its predecessors. And I remember for me the awakening moment twice, not with Disney Parks, but with the films was when Little Mermaid came along. Incredibly high tech compared to Snow White and whatnot. And yet it looked like a, a classic Disney movie. And then to have that happen again with Tangled, where, okay, the bridge was crossed and we've now created a, a CG film that feels and smells and breathes like a Disney movie. And you care about this girl and you care about the guy and the personalities all came through. And I think if you really study... Walt never probably dreamed about the, you know, well, he probably saw the inkling of, uh, of uh, not, uh, what do you call it, uh, I've lost my train of thought. Walt probably saw on the horizon that there were going to be uh, films that were created with processes like the Xerox, which was just beginning there at the end of his life, but going on to the cap system and all that. But he never dreamed of a CG world. He couldn't have even conceived of that. But I think when I see that film, Tangled, which is way far away from Snow White, but has the same DNA, mm. it feels like a Disney movie. Um, the, whoever put, was on that team to pull that together, that is the brilliance of adjusting to the times and the technologies and all the ramifications of what it means to be a little girl dreaming of being a princess today versus what it felt like in 1937. And I think that illustrates kind of what... I struggle with every day is to try and figure out how do I deliver what it is it means to be classic Disney with a set of tools and, and uh, expectations that are so vastly different. I actually think, and this is how I described it when I left it for the first time, I think that's in the parks what Cars Land has done. Mm-hmm. I think that's what Radiator Springs Racers has done because I analogize it to Splash Mountain. Mm-hmm. It is that quintessential classic Disney attraction. It has, it has all those requisite elements. Great storytelling, advancements in technology, the rewritability factor, the, the little bit of the unknown, a great soundtrack, that reveal moment when mm-hmm. the waterfall. And that's what I thought. I said, you know, you're sort of reinventing the classic but but making it even mm-hmm. better. And I think one of the greatest testaments that I heard when I was here for the opening was a kid asking his parents, is, is this where they filmed cars? Right, exactly. <laughs> I think you're right. I mean, I look at the rock work because – I was very proud of what we did on Big Thunder with essentially manual tools and models and little, you know, measuring things with, you know, physical stuff. You know, 
cars benefits from being totally digitally conceptualized. So once the model was done, the computers took over and scanned it, built and bent the rebar to build the skeleton for it. And of course, there's unbelievable handcraftsmanship in the final thing. But um, all of that effort that I know is so stupendously hard uh, that the computer takes over and creates an absolutely undetectable reality there. It is so real that I love walking in kind of the back door where the arch is from the Pacific War. And as you come out into that area, it's absolutely real. Yeah. You know, forget the ride. I'm in an altered universe here. <laughs> and it's the product of technologies that you couldn't have created that 20 years ago. And yet it, it thinks and smells like a Disney attraction. So I think that's what, you know, is, is this the continuum. So we're all going to have to deal with changes in management, changes in demands, changing in public desires and all that. But I think what distinguishes the Disney canon of um, creative effort is that it's Disney. And trying to keep that alive is very hard, but I think we've been able to do it again and again. So that's the challenge. I think it's a challenge that that, that has met... Um you know, again, certainly Walt may not have been able to see this far on the horizon as to where things come, but I think he would probably be proud of the path that you have all taken and the legacy of Walt that you have carried on. Uh, Tony Baxter, I wish, and hopefully someday I will, um, have more time to chat with you okay. about what you have done. Uh, again, I know we have a limited time here. People who are here at the Mouse Meet are very excited uh, to hear from you tomorrow. Again, this has been a, uh, a thrill and an honor for me, and on behalf of myself and my family, uh, whose work you and the team at Imagining have, have uh, delighted for years, I am truly, truly grateful. Well, thank you. It's been, I'm really excited about tomorrow, and this is supposed to be the most enthusiastic group there is, so I am excited to be a part of it. Right. Tony, thanks again. I appreciate okay. it. Now my friend, the time has come to tell this tale to you. Hear the legend of Thunder Mountain. If you eat a pot and stay away. It's time for the Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I give you a chance to play for a Disney prize package simply by answering a question about Walt Disney World history or trivia, or maybe identifying a quote or a line from an attraction or show. Before we get to this week's question, let's go back, review last week's question and the answer, and select our winner. So last week we were talking about Epcot and the sense of nostalgia with the 30th anniversary coming and I talked to you a little bit about Innoventions, more specifically Communicore, which is what it was originally known as, and how it featured many different hands-on exhibits and information centers and a few small attractions, often which complemented or extended the experience you may have had at some of the pavilions as well. And at one of these exhibits was a small purple and chrome robot that sat on a pedestal and played some question and answer games with guests using some very, very rudimentary speech recognition. And so your question of the week was to identify what the name of that robot was. And again, many of you must be in full-blown Epcot 30th anniversary mode or remember our little friend known as Smart One. It was SMRT1. He was one of many of the robots that you could see in and around Epcot like Gyro or Starnak and Seiko. 
but Smart One was located inside Communicore, and he let guests compete against one another using sort of telephone handsets in order to do some uh, basic question-answer trivia game playing. Well, again, literally hundreds of you sent this uh, answer in correctly. Some of you even shared some photos of Smart One from your personal collection, so thank you for sending those in. So out of the hundreds of correct answers that we received this week, I randomly selected one, and the winner of the prize package, which includes all six of my audio tours of Walt Disney World, a WDW Radio luggage tag button, and five-year anniversary pin is Jim Dial. So, Jim, congratulations. Thank you again for playing. Please send me your address. I'll get your prize package out to you right away. Thanks to all of you who played, and if you didn't win, that's okay, because here is this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week. One of the most recognizable attraction lines in all of Walt Disney World comes from Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, tying this back to the interview with Tony Baxter, and it is... Howdy, folks. Please keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the train and remain seated at all times. Now then, hang on to them hats and glasses, because this here's the wildest ride in the wilderness. And that safety spiel is heard at the beginning of the attraction and is voiced by Dallas McKinnon. Over the years, Dallas lent his voice to many films, including Disney's Lady and the Tramp, Mary Poppins, and 101 Dalmatians, as well as other cartoon characters like Gumby. But he can also be heard elsewhere in Walt Disney World. For example, he voiced the old man with a little bit of a hearing problem in the Haunted Mansion graveyard, who is unable to hear the mummy talking through the bandages, and you always hear him saying, what's that, huh, louder? And he's also Zeke in the Country Bear Jamboree. But many people recognize Dallas for a prominent speaking role in another of Walt Disney World's attractions. And here's a hint. With Epcot's 30th anniversary coming up, you may want to listen or look or think over there. So your question for this week is, tell me, what other notable role in a Walt Disney World attraction can you hear Dal McKinnon's voice? Tell me the character and the attraction and remember the hint. You can email your answers to contest at www.radio.com by 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time on Sunday, September 2nd. Again, you'll be playing for a prize package including, but not limited to, all six of my audio walking tours of Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, WW Radio luggage tag, button, five-year anniversary pin, and a special additional bonus prize as well, of which I have not figured out what that will be as yet. So uh, email your answers again, contest at www.radio.com. Good luck and have fun. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Thanks again for taking the time and tuning in this and every week. A couple of quick reminders. Don't forget to join us every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern at www.radiolive.com. I do a live video broadcast and interactive chat with you as we talk about this week's Walt Disney World news, oftentimes broadcasting right from Walt Disney World. Be sure and follow me also on Twitter. I'm at Lou Mangiello. And come by, subscribe to my page over on Facebook at facebook.com slash Lou Mangiello. And if you're on Pinterest, I'm also there at pinterest.com slash Lou Mangiello. Also, be sure and check out the WW Radio blog. Every day, we have lots of new posts from a bunch of great contributors. We have our Pinspiring Disney contest going on now until August 31st. A new vegan vegetarian dining author in Walt Disney World as well, too. Check it out over at the blog. And don't forget, too, you can also subscribe to the blog. Get new posts delivered daily to your inbox for free as well. 
Lots of new events coming up as well, too, including our WDW Radio e-ticket event and evening at the American Adventurers Club just under a month away, uh, Friday, September 28th at the American Adventure Pavilion. We're going to have a private show reminiscent of the Adventurers Club in Pleasure Island, a bunch of surprises, special guests, including Disney artists, Imagineers, legends, and lots more. Thanks also to everybody who came to the meet of the month this past weekend over at Wilderness Lodge. Had a great time getting to meet so many new faces and friends. Stay tuned for September's meet of the month coming soon as well, too. Don't forget also, I love hearing from you. Make this a two-way conversation. So if you want to be heard on the air, you can call the voicemail at 407-900-9391. That's 407-900-WDW1. Or you can email me if you have a question you want me to answer on the show at lou at wdwradio.com. Quick thanks as always to my partners and sponsors, mousefantravel.com, my official recommended travel provider, whether you're coming to Disney World, Disneyland, Adventures by Disney, Disney Cruise Line, best possible prices, all available discounts, all at no additional cost to you. When you're coming down to Walt Disney World, check out swananddolphin.com. You can stay right in the heart of Disney. Enjoy their 17 world-class restaurants and lounges, the Western Heavenly Beds, the Mandara Spa, and look for the Swan and Dolphin Food and Wine Classic coming up in just a couple of weeks as well, too. If you want something bigger, bringing down the home family, check out allstarvacationhomes.com. They have everything from two-bedroom condos up to seven-bedroom homes within just a couple of miles of Walt Disney World. Speaking of food and wine, the Epcot 2012 Food and Wine Festival is coming up very, very soon. Perfect time to go out and get your new Disney Food Blog mini guide to the Food and Wine Festival. It has a full schedule of daily events at 11 themed world showcase booth crawls, touring strategies, what's new, chef indexes, lots and lots more, more than 160 pages. You can get that over at dfbguide.com and use code WDWRADIO at checkout to save $3 off the cost of the book. And if you want a little bit of Disney magic delivered right to your door or your iPad, you can go to celebrationspress.com, subscribe and order back issues of Celebrations Magazine, the bi-monthly magazine, celebrating all things Disney, and now you can get it on your iPad as well too. Visit celebrationspress.com or this week's show notes for a link to the iTunes store. And finally, my friends, and you are my friends, whether we have met yet or not, all I ask from you is that if you like the show, please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Share links on Twitter, Facebook, or Pinterest, or Google+, Plus, your favorite discussion forums. And please come by, rate and review the show over in iTunes. Very much appreciate it, and I'll put a link directly to iTunes in this week's show notes over at www.radio.com. And finally, I want to sincerely thank you for taking the time and tuning in each and every week and letting me share my passion for Disney with you. And I want you to remember that every day presents a new opportunity. So go out there, take it, make it, learn from it. And as Walt Disney said, always keep moving forward. I hope you have a great week this week. So get out there and be awesome. See ya. Hey, Lou Mangiello. This is Brian O'Flynn from Northern Kentucky. Disney Frito in the box. And just like I said when I met you at Epcot a few months ago, I was called my little son was born. And here he is, your next big fan, uh, Cameron Scott O'Flynn. And he was 9 pounds, 11 ounces. He's a pretty big guy. But he's kind of sitting here. We're still in the hospital, actually. But he just wants to say hi. He's grunting a little bit. He's saying, Lou, I want to hear your show. But anyway, uh, I thought I'd call, so here's the call. So we'll be listening on the next podcast. So it'll be 
two new set of ears will be listening in. So that's all I was wanting. Talk to you later. You've got a friend.